You're listening to Sustainability Inc., a new limited series podcast from Boston Consulting Group, produced by Fortune Brand Studio. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fortune. Hello, I'm Gaia Vince, host of Sustainability Inc. Throughout the 12 episodes in our series, we'll be delving into the innovative, inspiring missions of top companies around the globe, talking to the business leaders at the front lines of achieving real climate impact. With the stakes higher than ever and the opportunity to make a difference greater than ever, these are the stories to inspire us all to join the urgent fight for true sustainability. It's no secret that some people are far more at risk from climate change than others. Drought, violent storms and other extreme events hit some communities much harder than others. Now, some of that is down to geography and some is down to wealth, how resilient you are to climate shocks. But gender also plays a role. Women and girls are more vulnerable to climate impacts and they also risk being impacted by the transition to sustainability. So we are facing a huge climate crisis, but this is also a crisis of inequality. With me to discuss this is Zineb Squally, a partner at Boston Consulting Group. Zineb, why do we need to look at climate change through a gender lens? This intersection between climate, not just climate change, but climate in general and gender is an important issue. Number one, women are disproportionately impacted by climate change. They are today and they will be more and more tomorrow, simply because women are more exposed. They are more vulnerable, especially in emerging markets. So women are more likely to be displaced by climate change. Girls' education is also more at risk um, with the increase of natural disasters, water scarcity and also, women's job and income level could also be at risk more than men, especially in sectors like agriculture. Number two, if we don't take a proactive gender lens in the green economy, then not only climate change will have a negative impact on women, but also climate action could have a negative impact on gender equality. And this is a bit unexpected because you're working towards a better planet, right? We call it the unintended consequences of climate action. And it's largely because women are underrepresented in the fast growth green economy. And therefore, they are at a disadvantage in getting new jobs, in participating in reskilling, in gaining access to funding for green startups. So what you're saying is, as the world adapts and as different countries adapt to climate change, we must be particularly careful to ensure that women are not being disproportionately affected by this adaptation. The thing that we don't talk about a lot is even when designing our actions in terms of climate mitigation, climate adaptation, we should make sure that we're not leaving women behind not just as potential victims of climate change, but also as players, entrepreneurs, leaders, educators, farmers, workers. So as agents of change and as agents of climate action. So this is why, for me, integrating women into the climate fight is actually a win-win. 
We don't have to choose between gender equality or climate action. We actually can do both. Now, integrating women is important, but too often the gender balance is restricted to the shop floor. Alexandra Polt heads corporate responsibility at L'Oreal. So how important is it for women to be at the negotiating table? Extremely important. There is an approach to adaptation and mitigation that is related to the reality that women live daily. That is today not part of the radar of the conversation because no women is at the negotiation table. So, of course, it is essential that women participate in the conversation. Is it possible to be a profitable company but also think about these issues of women, of climate change, of sustainability and gender equality? I think you cannot be a profitable performing company without thinking about your contribution to society, your responsibility in this society, about women empowerment, about an inclusive and more equal society. L'Oreal is the living proof that those go hand in hand. More than 50% um, of our boards are women. More than 60% of our managers are women. More than one third of the C-suite is female. That is where we still want to progress. And more than half of our brands are led by women. And what sort of projects are L'Oreal involved in? We have a lot of natural ingredients among our ingredients. And we have a target of sustainably sourcing these ingredients. And sustainably sourcing means, of course, taking into account environmental issues, but also means take into account livelihoods, income, the global situation of women. To give you a concrete example, one of our programs is uh, the program for Shia butter sourcing. This is a project that benefits almost 40,000 women. Shia butter is among the top 10 ingredients used by L'Oreal. It is used in over 1,000 hygiene or, or care products. So uh, Burkina Faso is one of the richest sources in Shia trees and one of the poorest countries in the world. So when we look into the processing of Shia nuts, you become aware that women harvest them, then they boil them, and already in that process, there are a lot of opportunities to have a positive impact. Because to boil them, they do that on open fireplaces with sheer wood, of course, to, to make the fire. And this is uh, very carbon intensive. It's not good for the health. It is also threatening the feedstock by cutting the sheer tree. So we worked on a project in order to both empower the women and protect the environment by providing women the improved cook stoves that will allow them to reduce the amount of firewood needed to boil the nuts. And so that is allowing women to not collect the wood, which is often at the expense of other incoming generating activities. And at the same time, there are environmental benefits because we combat deforestation and cut CO2 emission so since 2020, we have added microinsurance scheme for the loss of harvest or crops. And we are launching a, a second project with these women for beeswax that it will allow the diversification of the household's income. So are you dealing directly with the women? Because money quite often gets appropriated by other people and doesn't directly go to, to the women themselves. Yes, in general, what we do when we have programs like this, either it's an NGO with whom we are working, 
who um, makes the project being responding to women's needs, or we also supported the creation of cooperatives. So we have done that, for example, in Morocco uh, for argan oil, where the women created a cooperative where they then saved a part of the money to create health insurance schemes and education schemes. So, of course, we are never working alone and it is not our um, expertise. So we are always working with the supplier, with the communities and with NGOs or local partners that guarantee that the project is having the impact we aim for. What are the benefits in investing in women? What are the wider benefits for the community um, that you can see? Well, I think well, every study says that countries that are successful with healthy economies, with healthy societies, are countries where gender equality is promoted. The interest for a company is also to operate in healthy societies, in functioning societies, in functioning economies. So inequality, social unrest, women's rights violation, it's not healthy for economies and for societies. And so it makes it more difficult for business to operate in societies that are peaceful, in countries that are peaceful. We know that when women are empowered, when we live in societies where the level of gender equality is higher and the level of women's participation in the economy, in decision-making, in um, politics, um, political representation is higher, these are countries that function better. But above that interest, I think it is also very important for us as a company, you know, Everything at L'Oreal is about women empowerment. This value of women empowerment has also to express in the way we do our business. And we see our role in society as bringing beauty products to women and men that empower them, that create a beauty that moves the world. But that is also valid, of course, for our whole value chain. And that means being sure that all our economic activities empower women and benefit them. So a lot of your products, most of them are for women. Do you also get demand from customers? Do they want you to move in this area? Well, we are a little bit ahead of the demand. It is very clear that people, consumers, customers, um, civil society expects us to have a positive contribution and to uh, protect women's rights and empower them. How do you ensure that your supply chains are not repressing women in some way? So, of course, these are very, very difficult issues and they need a lot of work. L'Oreal has started very early to do supplier audits. So all our suppliers and especially suppliers who live in risk zones, you know, in zones where women's rights might be not respected or workers' rights might not be respected, are audited. So we are doing several thousand social audits every year. When we know that in a value chain of an ingredient, there is a risk of any kind of human rights violation, we will trace the whole value chain. So not only our suppliers, but really going down to the field. So we have done that on difficult ingredients issues, such as palm oil, where we decided that we have to track down until ideally the farmer or at least the mill, because then there are 10, 15 other steps in the value chain. And that is a huge work. It is very time intensive and money intensive, but it allows also to transform collectively a value chain, to transform collectively 
the sourcing because, of course, if L'Oreal as a leader goes there, other will follow also, and that will improve the value chain of ingredients. So it is extremely important to do that work, that work of traceability, of auditing, of transparency, because that is, of course, which will secure the best working conditions. The supply chain starts, for L'Oreal and for many other companies, with the farmers who grow the product ingredients. Zeneb, tell me a little bit more about the problems that female farmers specifically face. So that, that's a very important one. So women depend actually more on the agricultural sector than men do. And that's specifically in emerging markets. So in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, more than 60% of women work in agriculture. And the problem is women farmers are less able to adapt to climate change than men because they have less access to information, less access to technology, to decision-making processes, and they also have a greater workload. So, of course, modern agriculture techniques can enhance agricultural productivity, and it will in the years ahead. It's just that longer drafts, erosion, extreme weather events will necessarily offset those gains. And all of this will actually result in reduced productivity, and it means reduced income for female farmers. It could also mean job losses for female farmers as well. So tell me how are we going to solve some of these problems? So to support women farmers in this fight against climate change, we need to First of all, make sure that new technologies and new processes are appropriate to women's interests specifically, to women's resources, to women's demands. Otherwise, women will not adopt them. And by the way, they will not be adopted successfully, so they will not reach their emission reduction full potential. Secondly, we need to provide women with access to information to financing, but also to insurance services. And lastly, we need to recognize and support women's ability as farmers, as innovators, to bring new solutions that could be deployed at scale. Some companies are prioritizing gender right at the heart of their sustainability strategy. Sally Gilligan, Chief Growth Transformation Officer for GAP, told me why centering women is important to the company. Sure, it's very important to us. We are 76% women as a company and 86% of our customers are women and millions of women help us make our goods globally. And so it's a problem that is front and center to who we are and our identity. And we also feel strongly around our equity in the markets. Now, obviously Gap is a global company and your supply chains stretch uh, across the United States and Europe, but also in a number of poorer countries where the regulations aren't as strong and whether where transparency isn't as easy to ascertain. How do you make sure that those supply chains really are improving in terms of sustainability? First, we believe that you have to partner um, with a number of entities, whether at the government level or NGOs and at the local community level. Because one of the ways that you make sure change actually happens is that you're embedded in the communities that you're an active part of. So that is first and foremost for us. But in terms of empowering women, we have set up a program in 2007 called PACE. It stands for Personal Advancement and Career Enhancement. 
And it's really around ensuring women have life skills, on-the-job training, in some cases, it's financial awareness. And that program we have taken with our strategic vendors and ensured we've rolled it out in each of the factories and through that training. And we have regular ways that we measure who's gone through the class. We look at the productivity within the factory. And the thing we've seen is our partners and our suppliers have seen absenteeism come down, right? They've seen productivity go up. They've seen more promotions internally. It's been a huge impact of the females that work for us in this broader supply chain have also seen broader career empowerment. They've also had an increase in their ability to provide for their families. We've committed to some pretty significant goals through 2025. The reason I mentioned that is by setting the goals, we also put in place measurement and we also put in place feedback loops because I won't tell you it's all perfect. It takes work to go and build these programs. But part of those goals and one that's very important to me is parity at the supervisor level. And part of the way to continue to lift women up is to ensure that they have a seat at the table. And that's an important part of that program. And on the environmental side, we have adopted the Higg Index in our factories for measurement. And we do believe that standardizing on measurement and transparency around that measurement is a critical part of our making progress. Now, there is a growing environmental movement generally, and we are seeing a lot more response from those in power now to start looking at these things, but it's been very slow. And it sounds like Gap's been pretty proactive on some of these things. Why has it been important to the company? First and foremost, I would say we are fortunate that from the day that our founders, Don and Doris Fisher, started Gap Inc., we've been value-based. Don used to use the phrase, and it's still very much so in ethos in our company, do more than sell clothes meaning they fundamentally as two individuals meant that you could have an impact bigger than yourselves and you had an obligation to have that in the world you operate in. And then on top of that, it's just good business sense. It's important to our employees. That's why many of our employees stay and work with us. It's important to our customers. It's expressed um, our Athleta brand as an example as a B Corp. Gap has launched a number of programs around water. Now, fashion and the garment industry is very water intensive as an industry. What are you doing in local communities to ensure that there's better access? Because as we mentioned earlier, the brunt of that water access does fall to women and girls. It's actually very important to us that we don't just save water within our operations and drive for recycled um, processes, but we also make sure that we address the access to clean water within the communities that we impact. And so we have a number of programs and partners we work with um, whom we're incredibly grateful for. Our biggest program has been what we call Women in Water. It's a partnership with USAID, and it's been a six-year program to impact, and our goal has been two million um, individuals. We've impacted a million. We just hit that milestone the past month. And it's all centered around making sure um, that there is access in the local communities. And so that takes making sure whether that's working with different partners to make sure there's well, um, making sure that it's hygienic, um, what that treatment looks like. Um, we also um, have done a fair bit of work with um, water.org, which has provided financing um, and microloans to help make sure pumps can be put in local villages, as an example. In 2050, our water goal is not just water savings, it's water positivity. And water positivity is that full circle of bringing it back to access um, within the communities where people can have a thriving community and have access that they need. And what are some of the things that you've learned through this process? You know, one, I think it does take time and it takes long-term commitment to go do it. Again, it takes partnership, right? So whether it's innovation, there's some incredible technology that's come to bear. It takes everyone to come to the table and getting folks to the table and also then being able to really 
focus and set goals so that you start to get after it as well is really important. We've also learned you have to listen to your local community. I think it does take extensive partnership at many different levels and making sure that you, you know, do bring multiple folks to the table um, is really what will make the biggest difference. It's not a problem that can be solved individually. Can you be good and be profitable? Um, so I think the answer is yes. Um, we believe so and we do it um, day in, day out. But I also tell you it takes a commitment to your values and it takes the hard work because um, we're not perfect. And as you go through and you make these commitments, part of the reason for the long-term commitments is to create the impetus to start to partner and start to have the change. What's the biggest challenge that you face over the next two to five years in terms of increasing uh, sustainability and, and gender engagement? There are so many challenges, but um, you know, I think one that's really important, the access to renewable energy um, is still not at present in many of the developing countries. And I think that is a big portion of getting after the climate commitments that have been made and the innovation around that that needs to occur will be critical in the coming years for us to make the type of change and the size of change that we all want to do together. Change takes time, as Sally says. But Zinab, what are the biggest challenges we face at the moment in terms of increasing sustainability and gender engagement? I don't like to picture women just as victims of climate change. They can definitely be players at the forefront of climate action. But we need to make sure that women participate to decision making at all levels beyond just the, I would say, numerical representation to have mechanisms that allow women to influence decisions and to take initiatives so that their voices are fully heard. Why does it matter? Why is gender diversity important in executive committees or on boards or when it comes to investing in green entrepreneurial companies? Having women in boards or having women in, in companies, in executive positions um, or as investors, it's not the right thing to do. It's actually the smart thing to do. And it applies to climate, but it applies to pretty much every other thing. So multiple research has shown that diversity in general and gender diversity specifically yields more results when it comes to economical performance, when it comes to innovation. So companies with gender diverse executive committees and boards generate more revenues from innovation, for example. And we know how innovation is important in the digital world and in the fight against climate action, simply because it provides the companies, it provides um, the countries, it provides every institution to have different views of the same problem and it also takes into account from the very beginning of um, the diagnosis of every situation, the specific situation of women. Because what happens very often, especially in the developing world, is that women come as an afterthought and gender comes as an afterthought. So you design the whole program and at the end you think, how does that impact women? And this does not fulfill the objective of gender equality. So what you need is to embed women at the very beginning of the diagnosis and every step of the way. So gender inclusion is really important, especially as we tackle climate change. 
Anouk Hyland is Global Sustainability Director for Social Strategy at Unilever. Anouk, tell me why it's become so important to the company. For Unilever as a business, we know that the climate crisis is already impacting and costing our business. 40% of our factories are in water-stressed areas, so it's a huge issue for Unilever. If you then look at the moral imperative, women and children are 14 times more likely than men to die during climate-related disaster. 80% of people displaced by climate change are women. And the impact of COVID, for example, are not the same for men and women. Look at the economic impact, women in jobs impacted by COVID. They had additional care responsibilities. There's more gender-based violence. And looking at the latest uh, report by the World Economic Forum on the gender gap, COVID has caused another generation of women to wait longer for to reach equality. So for Unilever, the reason why we, this is obviously a great imperative, right, for us to act on it. And it helps us grow. We've looked in our consumer base and we know that women control 64% of consumer spending and they account for more than 70% of sales. So it makes sense for us to invest in women. The ambition goes way back. We started in 2010 with the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, which was based on a firm belief that Unilever can only prosper if the communities that we serve prosper as well. We added the Enhancing Livelihoods Pillar in 2014, which was basically about including fairness in the workplace, inclusive business and opportunities for women. And in that first phase, which was 10 years, we enabled 2.34 million with access to initiatives aimed to promote their safety, skills and expand their opportunities. And it demonstrated that this sustainable business strategy was actually driving growth. So this eventually culminated in the, what we call the Compass, which is our fully integrated corporate strategy based on a firm belief that this will drive superior financial performance as well. It has three key focus areas underpinned by the respect and promotion of human rights, obviously. We look at the health of the planet, and that's where we set all the kind of climate targets, improve people's health, confidence and well-being, and contribute to a fairer and more socially inclusive world. Now, in the West, where Unilever is headquartered in Europe, there's a longer standing recognition that gender equality is something we should all be striving for. But when you go down the supply chains, especially in fields like agriculture, in which the majority of women farmers do the majority of work, often they're not nearly as well protected as their male counterparts. So how do you ensure gender equity and safe livelihoods further down the supply chain? In that gender equity framework, we looked at these three drivers. So women's economic empowerment is an important one, voice and leadership and safety. We had instances of sexual harassment in our supply chain in 2014, specifically on tea plantations. So what we did is we wanted to address the issue, but we wanted to address it in a way that would systemically address the issue in all our commodities and supply chain. So we sought a partnership with UN Women and we developed something based on the experience in our tea supply chain in Africa, in Rwanda and Kenya and in Tanzania. We looked with UN Women and we developed something we called a global framework to drive safety for women in rural spaces. And basically that takes a standard approach that if you want to drive safety, you need to look at various factors. So not only look at, are there phone numbers for these women to call, but do we actually invest in their kind of skills and development? 
But do we look at the enabling environment as well? Do we work with local governments? And we're now working with other partners based on the same methodology in other supply chains as well to really try to drive safety for women. I mean, that sounds fantastic because that really is um, getting right to the heart of some of the problem that people really face on the ground. And I wonder if there's any coalition or a collaboration with other companies, because this really is very much a, a journey, a learning journey. Um, and it sounds like you've been right at the forefront of that and could share that expertise with other companies much more broadly. Yes. Yeah, so three things. So one is, so we started a partnership, which we call the Women's Safety Accelerator Fund. And so one way to address the issue as per your previous question is to actually work with other partners. So we work with the Initiative Sustainable Trade, in tea with the Ethical Tea Partnership, and we want to work together with other purchasing companies as well. The other solution that we find is to really make sure that we increase the capacity of local service providers on the ground, which was a bit difficult when we worked together with the UN Women, because we really want to make sure that we put all the energy and effort on really capacitating local NGOs. But what we want with these type of programs, if Unilever leaves, we need to make sure that there's a long lasting change. So that building that capacity of the local NGOs is a really important thing to do. And then the third thing that we really focus on is to focus on the impact that we create. It's not about the amount of times that we interact with women on the ground or the amount of trainings that we did. We need to focus more on the impact that we're creating through these partnerships. So why is it important to focus on values that go beyond, say, giving profits to shareholders? Why is it so important to look at safety and well-being and the whole environment? I guess companies that don't do that will ultimately be rejected by society. I strongly believe that. I think there's no place for a company in the future that doesn't act on these issues. But a company can't do it alone. So there needs to be multi-stakeholder partnerships with governments, with other kind of companies and with NGOs as well to solve issues like these because they are very complicated. We need to better integrate the environment and social agenda because often I see it's very much done in isolation the true impact that we can have will be by marrying the two agendas. As Anouk says, these are complex, multiple agenda issues. So how do we get women involved, Zineb? How do we become more proactive in whose voices and whose causes are actually represented? So I think we've done a lot of progress in there, but there is still some challenges. So what we need to do to solve those issues is, I would say, twofold. One is to make sure that we do have a gender lens in climate investments. So there are trillions of dollars that will be a massive influx of money that will come to climate investments. And we need to make sure that we are supporting female entrepreneurs we found that women-led green startups are even less funded than non-green startups. And it's interesting to understand why. So the why is that green startups are usually capital intensive and they're usually disruptive. So more capital intensive, more disruptive than I would say the other startups, which tends to increase the bias towards female entrepreneurs because they would be asking for more money and to do something in a business model that's very different from the business models that usually exist. So at the end of the day, we end up with a larger gap in 
the green startup world than we had in the startup world in general. Now, when we adapt the economy and we transition to greener economies, whether it's greener agricultural techniques or in other professions, tell me about the issues with reskilling and upskilling female workers specifically. How can companies ensure that they don't widen the gender gap in the green economy? Yeah, so actually that's I would say that was the unintended part I was talking about earlier. It's to say that if we don't take this proactive gender lens, then the climate action and the way we design it today could have a negative impact on women. And this is actually the case in two areas. The first one you mentioned, it's the reskilling. What's happening is that women are underrepresented today in the sectors where the major green reskilling efforts will take place. So that's energy, that's building materials, that's industrial goods, that's engineering. So if we don't necessarily and proactively target women that are in these sectors, then this influx of money that will come to reskilling the workers of these industries will actually predominantly go to men. And the other issue is that reskilling requires time. And given that women carry a heavier burden in terms of childcare responsibility, and that's globally in all the cultures in the world, they would find it actually more difficult to participate to the vocational training systems, for example, to the same degree as men. And the other thing I wanted to share is Climate action is actually just one example of the fact that we definitely need to have a proactive gender lens in every policy or in every action we design. Because with the best of intention, given the level of inequality that we have today, if we do not take this proactive gender lens, we will unconsciously be perpetuating existing inequalities. And this is what happens with climate action. This is why it's an unintended consequence. It's because we don't necessarily take proactively a women lens. And even when we do so, we just consider women as victims of climate change, while women can actually be the smartest climate investment to make. Achieving sustainability is about more than decarbonizing. It's about recognizing the diverse social ecosystem that we live and work in and making sure that that diversity is reflected in our businesses in an equitable way. That means making sure women and girls are an integral part of our climate solutions for a truly sustainable future. Sustainability Inc. is a Boston Consulting Group podcast produced by Fortune Brand Studio without the participation of the Fortune editorial staff. Next time, we'll hear about some innovative sustainable investing practices from the visionaries that are leading the charge. Thank you for listening to Sustainability Inc. Please subscribe, download and leave comments and ratings wherever you listen.